our scripture that we'll be studying from this morning. On Sunday mornings we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and we've kind of been out of that for a couple of weeks because of the holidays and special days and, and uh, now we come back to it. Luke's Gospel chapter 14. We pick things up in verse 25. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, him being Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider the cost, consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him, with 20,000, or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. And so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Lord, we have ears, and we like to think that we have ears to hear whatever it is that you would want to speak to us through your word and by your Holy Spirit. We're not interested in just having some small portion of our life to be fashioned by you or some even significant portion to be fashioned by you and your word. We want all that we are of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength to be fashioned by your Holy Spirit and by your word. And so give us ears to hear what we need to hear from you from this passage. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's a part of human history. Thank you for the difference that it has made in our lives, Lord. We want to continue to do so this morning. And we ask you to do all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus' teaching here follows his departure from a home of a ruler of the Pharisees that he had been invited into in order to share a meal. The invitation on the part of this really high-ranking and high-profile religious leader to Jesus to share a meal was not given out of any great respect or fondness for Jesus. It was all a setup. He Also invited to this feast or this meal was a man with a dropsy, which was a a, a very difficult physical condition that this man had. And everybody knew enough about Jesus at this point in his ministry to know that when he walked into a room, the first person that got his attention was the person with the greatest need. And then he would address that need. And kind of the exciting thing is then... That means somebody else has the greatest need in the room and has his attention and on it goes. So it's kind of fun as we sit here today as he moves by his spirit to minister to our lives. So this man has the dropsy and the whole thing is a setup to see whether Jesus would heal the man of his dropsy on the Sabbath day, which would have been in violation of their interpretation of the law of Moses. Jesus answers their question pretty quickly by uh, having the man arise and he heals the man of his dropsy and then excuses him from the gathering. And it's, sometimes it's the little things in a passage that really get my attention so often. And it, obviously Jesus is doing the big things that he does, but it's a hostile environment. It's not about this man with a dropsy anymore. And he just, in essence, says, you don't need to be a part of You don't need this aggravation. You go on and enjoy the rest of your life. I'll hold down the fort for what's going on here. Jesus then turned to the religious leaders that were left in the room, and all that were left in the room were religious leaders of the Jews. 
And he rebuked them for their hypocrisy, for their willingness to take the law of Moses and to interpret it in a way that allowed them to show greater compassion upon their animals than they showed upon their fellow human beings. He also then spoke to the religious leaders and he rebuked them and instructed them upon coming into a room or an invitation like that to never take the highest seat in the room but always to take the lowest seat. And he turned to the man who gave the feast and had invited him and in essence, he encouraged the man, telling him that if you really want to be like God, if you're a religious leader that wants to be like God, make sure that you enlarge your uh, invitation list for meals like this to include people that cannot repay your invitation by inviting you to a meal. Jesus then leaves the house, and that's the context of what's going on here. He then leaves that house and begins to make his way down the road. And as he begins to make his way down the road, we're told in the passage that there are great multitudes of people following him. Not a great multitude singular, not great multitudes, uh, you know, a great multitude but great multitudes, plural. There is a gigantic group of people that are following Jesus at this time in, in his uh, ministry. Now, if I'm in Jesus' shoes, my response to a great crowd following me, I mean, I, I would look around and say, well, good enough. I, finally, I'm getting some recognition around here and some respect. And you think about the rabbis in Jesus' day, even the greatest of the rabbis would have been happy to have a crowd that is spoken of even by the Holy Spirit in terms of uh, great multitudes, plural. And uh, any one of them that would see such a great following, following them, the great temptation perhaps in their minds might be, don't say anything wrong, don't do anything that would upset the apple cart or mess this thing up in any way. We got a great thing going right now. Got a lot of momentum, a lot of followers. After all, isn't that what this is all about? Jesus looks at a crowd entirely different from the average person. And Jesus never, do you see it in the scriptures, never 2,000 years ago, and not today is he ever impressed by a crowd, just supremely a great number of people that are following him or the crowd that's gathered around him. And the reason that Jesus is never impressed by a crowd is he knows that a crowd is never made up of one kind of person or one quality of spirituality among the people. It's made up a lot of different kinds of people. And this crowd that's following Jesus is no doubt made up of many people who have seen Jesus, they've watched His miracles, they've listened to His teaching, and they have concluded in their hearts, this is the one that I've been searching through all of my life. I will follow Him all the days of my life and right into the glory of heaven. That's their commitment to Him. But there's another significant uh, group in this crowd, as is evidenced by the fact of what Jesus is going to teach in a moment, that their motives are not as pure. They're hanging around Jesus for the excitement factor. I mean, you never knew what Jesus was going to do next. It's not like hanging around me. What can, I can eat and sleep and do a couple of other things. It's a pretty boring life that I lead. But Jesus, you never knew what rabbit he was going to pull out of his hat or do next, what miracle he was going to do. You know, you could follow Jesus in the morning and, and, and end up fed. Jesus would feed people with loaves and fishes more than once, at least twice recorded in the Scriptures. And so there can be a lot of motives. What's he going to do next? What's the next exciting thing? What's in it for me? And those kind of motives behind some of the people that are are following him. And so Jesus isn't impressed with, with the crowds that way. And so as this crowd is following him, and you can picture it in your mind, he turns to address this multitude and he taught them a little sermon that was deliberately designed to thin out the ranks a little bit among his following. And the first thing that Jesus did was to candidly declare to them what would be required of them in order for them to follow him or in order for them to be his disciples and Jesus wanted them to know a little bit more about what they were getting into in following him 
Jesus, and it was one of the things that I always appreciated about him from very early in my Christian life as I would read the scriptures and you just look at him and you say, there's no guile, there's no hiding, everything is in the light, everything is open, everything is beautiful, there's no manipulation, and, and he's very upfront about what he's about. My best friend growing up in high school was a part of a religious organization and this is maybe why I appreciate this so much about Jesus where he's upfront with people about this is what it means to follow me this particular religious uh, group they would have kind of dances for young people and different things like that to get you in and they would get you in and they would just reveal by very small layers the religious system that you were being exposed to. And it was only as you were being indoctrinated by them that they would then reveal the next kind of mysterious uh, level of things until, and they would only reveal it so that they would kind of have you trapped and, and now you're so invested in the group that you wouldn't get out. And there's a lot of Religious systems that are like that, and there's a lot of kind of secret societies that are like that. Um, they reveal little by little. They're not upfront about what they're about, and, and they reveal their secrets uh, slowly. And Jesus just comes out, and he just lays it out at just black and white clear to people, and then it's up to the people to decide, you and me to decide, whether we want to have any part in that, in following him. Now the word disciple, when he, talk, when he speaks about disciple, and he uses it repeatedly in the passage, it literally means a follower. Uh, it means a learner. The word disciple wasn't just used in a religious setting in those days, though it was used heavily in that environment. It was used in the trades. It was the kind of thing where in life you would look at somebody and you liked who they were as a human being. You liked what life had turned them into. You liked what they knew or you at least liked what they were capable of doing with their hands or doing with their minds. And you would look and say, I want to be fashioned by that person. I want to reach a point in time in my life where I can, you know, work iron in that way. I can farm in that way. I can know the Bible in that way. And so a person would then become a follower or a learner or a disciple of that person. And so Jesus is talking to people that want him, Jesus, to have that kind of a place in our lives where we look at him and we say, that's what I want to be when I grow up. That's the life I want to live. That's how I want to talk. That's how I want to think. That's how I want to live. That's how I want to interact with people. That's how I want to process life. And then to come along and say, I am now your pupil. I'm your student. Make me into what you are. And that's what a disciple was. A disciple was a learner. And Jesus, here is he, uh, he, he describes here the commitment that he demands of everyone that wants to be his disciple and the commitment that we're agreeing to as Christians in order to become one of his followers. In verses 26 and 27, he gives the demands of di discipleship. I mean, put on your seatbelt. He, he doesn't ask for small things. The first thing in verse 26 that he requires of anyone who has any hope of being his disciple, of going where he goes in this world and then doing and being what he would do or be in that environment, the first thing that's required is that we must love Jesus supremely over everyone else in life and over everything else in life, including our own selves. And of course, that's the big rub or the big bump for most of us. Now, when Jesus speaks here in verse 26 about hating father, hating mother, hating wife, hating children, brothers and sisters. He's not telling us that we are literally to hate them. That would have been a violation of the fifth commandment of the, of the law of Moses, of the Ten Commandments, which said that we are to honor our fathers and our mothers. Jesus elsewhere in his ministry quoted that again and again as something that was to be the standard for the treatment of parents in the family unit. And so he, the law of Moses declared that we were to honor our father and our mother, not, certainly not to hate them. 
Jesus comes into the world and when they ask him how, what his position is on the law of Moses, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law of Moses, I came to fulfill it. So he can't be saying literally that we are to hate these people that have these relationships with us in life. Not only would it violate the law of Moses, it would violate Jesus' teaching. And his teaching, in fact, told us that we're to love everybody. He gave the commandments. Somebody said, what's the greatest commandment of all? And he said, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. Love God supremely. And then the second command is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So he calls us as Christians to love everybody. So he's not saying that we're to, to literally hate people. What he is saying is that our relationship with him is to have the preeminence over every other relationship in our lives. Our love for Him is to be so great that the other loves in our lives are hatred in comparison. Our loyalty to Jesus is to be so great that it comes before our loyalty even to family, even to life itself. And here's how it works out in our lives. You say, could you put some legs on that for me a little bit? Here's what it looks like. If a family member demands that I choose between my relationship with Jesus and my relationship with them, I am to choose my relationship with Jesus. If a family member comes to me, whatever that family relationship, and they demand that I choose between obeying them in violation of some commandment of Jesus uh, or obeying Jesus, then I always should choose to obey Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus is to be the single most important relationship in any of our lives. Now it's important, I think, to remember that this Bible is read by Christians all around the world. Not just American Christians. We live in an environment where we, we uh, enjoy tremendous religious freedom. We enjoy tremendous uh, religious uh, tolerance, relatively speaking, compared to the world. So we're not oftentimes put in this kind of place immediately upon being a Christian to choose between loving Jesus and all of the other relationships in our life. But the United States is a very small part of the rest of the world. Today, all around the world, people will become disciples of Jesus out of Hindu homes. And they will have to make this choice. And their families will very often force them to make this choice. Muslim homes, Jewish homes, even purely secular homes will oftentimes come to a person and say, you need to choose between Jesus or us, but it's not going to work both ways. And, and, and you're not going to be able to get both of us in, in this thing. And then the person is called by Christ to choose to follow him even over these other relationships. And one of the reasons that that's important, and there's a lot of reasons, is that where my family and where family approval will take me in life and where Jesus wants to take me in life, more often than not, those are two entirely different places. The quality of life and the kind of life that family approval will hold over my head in order to keep me in line a certain way and the kind of person that they want to pr turn me into or to produce through these kind of manipulations and, and uh, 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 conditions upon love and acceptance and all. And then where Jesus wants to take me in life or the quality of person that he wants to uh, produce in me, the kind of person he wants to make in me, two entirely different things. They're both so often about two entirely different agendas. And so our love for him has to be greater than any other personal relationship in our lives. Now let me be very, very quick to say that no human relationship 
should ever suffer in the area of love because of my love for Jesus. My relationship with Jesus should, and my love for him should always make me a more loving, caring person in every relationship in my life. And, and again, we note the order as the man asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the love that we have for our neighbor, our family, is to come out of the love relationship that we have first and foremost with God. What Jesus is calling us to do here is not like this is a New Testament thing and Moses was about something different in the Old Testament. The Old Testament law plainly declared God is to be num numero uno no matter what. And then we're to love our neighbors as ourselves out of the love of that relationship. So Jesus wasn't teaching anything new in terms of commitment and demand related to, to, uh, to God. What he was doing is he was making a demand upon these disciples that only God has a right to make. And so he's, he is basically declaring himself to be divine in doing this. So this, this thing of my love for God, it should... I should never love him and then as a result of that have less love for the people around me. I'll give you an example of this. Here's a husband and a wife. They both get married. Neither of them are Christians when they get married. And a co-worker begins to witness to the wife and she's got an emptiness in her heart about life and she's looking for the meaning of life and different things or a neighbor or something like that. She gives her life to the Lord. And all of a sudden, she's in this great relationship with Jesus. She's falling in love with Him more and more each day. Everything that she reads in the Scripture makes him, her love Him even more. And, and she begins to speak openly of her love for the Lord. Well, she's got an unbelieving husband over here who's not used to hearing her, his wife talk about loving some other man, Jesus in the Bible or nobody. This is, this is a hurdle to get over. So he ought to be able to look and say, she has fallen in love with this person called Jesus in the Bible. But I have also noticed at the same time that all of that has happened, she has never loved me more. I've never felt greater affection from her, greater attention from her, greater care on her part toward me. And so it should be related to every relationship in our lives. It's not an excuse to say, well, I love God and then everybody else is going to get the leftovers. The leftovers of a relationship with God will be plenty of love to go around in these other relationships uh, in, in our lives. And, and so the simple reality that Jesus is expressing is, is that a supreme loyalty to Him is critical. Given the rejection and the persecution that lies ahead for most Christians. Again, this Bible passage is taught all over the world, not just in Modesto and not just in the United States. And all over the world, some, and sometimes in other parts of the world to a greater degree than here, but I don't think that there is a single Christian who, if they choose to walk with Jesus in the way that he demands that they walk with him, that that will not occur at the expense of some relationship in our life and maybe even all relationships in our life that are meaningful to us up to the time that we come to know the Lord. It's a reality. It's a reality. The second thing in verse 27 that's required in order to be Jesus' disciple is that each of us must bear our own cross now, again, it's important to understand what Jesus is not saying. Some, some wives think their husband is a cross they bear. Boy, he's just the crankiest. I guess it's just my cross in life. Or we think it's some kind of a physical thing. Oh, this arthritis in my hands, I guess it's just my you know, cross to bear in life. That's not what Jesus is talking about uh, uh, here. What Jesus is saying here would have been very, very clear to his audience because his audience was a, a, an audience that was uh, mostly Jewish there in Israel, but they were under Roman occupation. They were under a part of the Roman Empire. 
And so we think about crosses today. We think about beautiful jewelry or pins that we wear. I'm not putting it down. There's a great cross up behind me by my permission in this church. So I like crosses. But how I look at a cross as a Christian is very different how Je- than how Jesus' listeners spoke about a cross. To me, the cross has been completely sanctified by Jesus. It's been overwhelmed by Jesus. By all that He has done for me on the cross, the thought of a cross is a beautiful thing to me. It wasn't in those days. A cross was the way that Romans killed people. It's how they killed convicted criminals. And so Jesus talks about picking up your cross, an instrument of death, as a requirement in order to follow after Him. Now, when the Roman government would... Uh, execute a person by crucifixion 2,000 years ago, the condemned criminal would be required to carry his cross from the place of judgment, the courthouse. He would need to carry that cross at least some distance to the place that he would be crucified. And the distance that he would typically carry it in would be through the town center. And basically what Rome was wanting to do was it was wanting to send a message to its citizens and the message was, crime does not pay. Don't do what this person did or one day we'll catch you and you'll be carrying your cross to your crucifixion. So it had a whole deterrent angle to it. But it had another angle to it also. It was on the part of Rome, it was to force that criminal that had once lived in rebellion against the law of Rome to confess before the whole world that it is now for the remainder of his short life living in submission to the law of Rome. And he would carry that cross and it was communicating, I'm no longer living in rebellion to Rome and in rebellion to Rome's commandments and and all of the Roman standard and, and all of that. I am now spending the rest of my life in submission to the rule of Rome. And in bearing our own cross spiritually, we are communicating that we are done fighting against the rules of God fighting against the commands of God, no longer living a life of sin, i.e. a life of crime. The government of God that I once lived in rebellion against day after day after day, I choose now to take up my cross and for the remainder of my life live in submission willfully, joyfully to the government that I fought against. And that's what the cross represents as Jesus speaks about it here. It is... Uh, where we are publicly renouncing a life of self-will, selfishness, again, the life of sin that results from it. And now, for the rest of my life, every time that self-will wants uh, me to do something, while the Word of God calls me to do something else, I am going to choose what God's Word tells me to do over my own selfishness. Every time my selfishness and my sin nature wants to take me in one direction in life, I am committing to choose to go in God's direction in in my life and in His plan for my life. That's what's being communicated by a person who is bearing their cross. It is a person who has settled the issue of Jesus' Lordship in their life. And it says, I am now committing to a life of saying no to myself, my own self-will and saying yes to God's commandments and yes to His will for my life. And I am committing to do it to this degree, to the point of death. That's all He asks. Those are the two demands of discipleship. I mean, you, you certainly can't say about Jesus what He's skirting in the issue or what did He mean by that? Or, uh, you know, is he going to surprise us later with something harder? I mean, he just lays the whole thing out. Those are the conditions and the demands of discipleship. So we can't accuse Jesus of, of soft-selling what's required to be his disciple, to follow him in this world. And this is real. This is what he calls Christians to do. I, I have been so blessed. I got saved in 1980. 
And in that, since that time, I've been so blessed to so, know so many Christians in this church, out of this church, in this town, out of this town, around the world, who have this kind of a commitment to Christ. He is more important to them than every other relationship. He is more important to them than their selfishness and their self-will. And they demonstrate it on a daily basis. And you look at this kind of person, and it's these kind of people that when you know them, in addition to knowing the Lord, these are the reasons why we consider ourselves rich, or I consider myself to be rich as a Christian. And you can't spot them, this kind of person, from the outside. They just look like everybody else in line at the grocery store. They look like every other kind of person that's filling up their gas tank at the gas station. But inside of them and it is this kind of a raw, strong, thankful, deliberate commitment that they've made to Christ. And, and then uh, as the choices in life and as the demands of life come along, they prove it over and over again. And it's a beautiful life. And it's a life that blesses Jesus. Now, Jesus never, ever said a hard thing just to say a hard thing. Boy, I've been saying a lot of nice things to these people for a few weeks. I just, I've got to hammer them. I'm gonna, uh, the crowd that gathers around me today, I'll tell you, they'll wish they never die. I'm going to let them have it. He never, ever said anything hard just to say something hard. Jesus said these things because he knew this is the only kind of commitment to love Him supremely at whatever cost to myself. This is the only commitment that will allow me to be His disciple, to be a follower, not just for the first five minutes of my walk with Him, but the last five minutes and the last few breaths of my life here in this world before I go into heaven. Now the interesting thing to me in all of this is Jesus lays out those demands of discipleship as he's looking at these great multitudes in front of him, this huge crowd, and I would have looked, used that as an opportunity to say, okay, you've heard the facts about these things, now I want to see a show of hands. Who's in and who's out? All right, who's in? He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He doesn't want an emotional response from this crowd or an individual person. He doesn't want a rash response from them at all doesn't want them to feel any pressure. Oh boy, it's Jesus asking me to raise my hand. And so I, even though I'm not willing to make this commitment, I want to look good in front. He doesn't, he doesn't want any of that to factor into anybody's decision to be his disciple and to be his follower. In fact, he's so concerned that nobody would make a purely light and casual and emotional commitment to follow him then in verses 28 to 31, he charges the crowd to count the cost before they make a decision on whether they want to be his disciple. And the reason he charges them to count the cost is the Christian life is the greatest life. It's the greatest life that can be lived in this world. But it's not the easiest life to be lived in this, this world. There are a lot of difficult decisions to be made in the Christian life. When you call someone to count the cost regarding something, you do that to a person where you know that what you're calling them to is hard. Jesus knows that what he calls us to is hard. But it is also the challenge of a person to another person who knows that the life that is found on this path is also a rich life. And it's worth all of the, the sacrifice that will be required to walk that path. And so Jesus challenges them and us to, to count the cost first. Now notice in verses 28 through 30 that Jesus highlighted the importance of counting the cost with the illustration of a man building a tower or building a building. Now, in the physical realm, and certainly 2,000 years ago in, in Israel in those days, no one starts building a building without first determining, determining the cost. 
Nobody would start pouring a foundation or start to lay the foundation without sitting down and spending at least some amount of time ahead of time to say, well, this is the scale of the building that I want to build and this is the dollar amount that it's going to take in terms of material and labor to accomplish it. In a physical realm, people don't start buildings without counting the cost unless they want to end up embarrassed in the process. And, and so the, if you're going to build a building, first thing you're going to do is determine the cost and then determine whether I have enough money to finish what it is that I've started. Because if a person starts a building and then gets the foundation laid, runs out of money, then that becomes a very poor reflection on that man. In fact, everybody who will walk past that half-built building from the time that it sits in that condition until it ultimately gets finished, will mock the man who started the building, would mock the, the idea of a man starting a building that he was unable to finish. And so uh, that person would make themselves a mockery or make themselves a laughing stock among the people. Now, nobody laughs to your face. It would just be they would walk by the building or drive by the building and look and say, that thing's been like that for years. It got started, nobody finished it. Who in their right mind would begin something and not finish it and have it sit in that condition? So the result is, as Jesus speaks here, is it results in mocking directed toward the person who failed to count the cost. The Spirit's application uh, uh, is this. When a person makes a half-hearted commitment to follow Jesus, and they start, and then after a while they stop walking with him, it sets a person up then to be mocked for the rest of their life. Hey, Bob, weren't you a Christian back in the 80s or something? What happened? The Bible studies get a little too tough for you? Didn't like, you know, the church services, too many services during the week or whatever? I mean, once we have made a commitment to Christ and we've begun that for a period of time, people tend to remember that. And then they also remember when a person says, I'm not going to do that anymore, I'm going to return to my former uh, life. One of the interesting things about the world and how they treat Christians and view Christians very often is many people in the world may not have a fond place in their heart for Christians for one reason or another. They, I mean, there can be a lot of reasons, but they can really, really dislike a Christian or Christians in general. But when they see one begin a relationship with Jesus and they watch that man or woman walk the walk and talk the talk from that moment on until the day they die, they respect it. They may not say anything, but they'll respect it. What the world has contempt for is the person who begins that relationship and then after a period of time leaves it off and then returns to their former lifestyle to some degree and yet continues to call themselves a Christian. The world is, is ruthless related to that. They will not mock that man to his face any more than they'll mock his building to his face. But they will mock him behind his back. He started something and that he has ceased to live now and, 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 and it results in great damage being done to the individual's uh, reputation. And so the half-hearted Christian or the start-again, stop-again Christian. More important, though, than the, this kind of Christian's reputation uh, in all of this, this kind of starting and stopping in a relationship with Jesus, it does great damage to the reputation of Jesus because it confuses people about what Christianity is really about. It gives them an incorrect understanding of Jesus, what he calls people to, the kind of people that he turns people into, about his wisdom, about his, his power. And so when a person starts to walk with Jesus and then stops, it gives the world the impression that there's got to be something wrong with Jesus. Why can't he keep his followers? Why do so many start and so many leave? 
Does he lack the power to hold on to them? Is he not attractive enough to hold people in allegiance to him for a lifetime? There must be something wrong with him, so why in the world would I investigate him for myself? And that's, that's what gets uh, produced. People been, begin to have those, those kind of conclusions. And what happens is when the world sees these on-again, off-again kind of Christians and, and uh, this, this kind of stuff, they fail to realize that the reason that that has happened isn't any problem in Jesus, but it is a failure of a person to honestly determine at the beginning whether they're willing to walk with him for the rest of the, their life or not. The world should never see Christians living off-again and on-again lives for Jesus. They should never see it. They should never see it one time in human history, according to the teaching of Jesus. They should see, without exception, people commit their lives to Christ and then walk with Him all the way to the rapture or all the way to the time that they go into glory. That's what Jesus intends the world to always see in a Christian. And when they see this start and stop version of Christianity, which is not a version of Christianity, what it does is it makes Christianity look weak. I remember watching a television special many years ago, and uh, it was kind of an investigation on why was the, uh, the uh, black Muslim movement... Uh, gaining such a, a stronghold among blacks in the inner cities. And why was the black Muslim movement growing by leaps and bounds among people who had grown up in church or had been in church for years, Christian churches? And they began to interview these, these young men and young women. Why, why this conversion over to uh, you know, black, becoming a black Muslim and abandoning Christianity to do it? They said, um, th- their answer related to being a black Muslim, they said, this is a strong religion. This is a religion that changes people. This is a religion that gets results. And what they were saying is what they were hearing, at least in the preaching from the pulpits of some of the churches as it relates to the Bible, is they never saw a strong Christianity. They never saw a strong demand laid on them, what it means to become a Christian, and then to see enough people walk that in front of them that when they get enticed with this other thing that they say, no, I can say no to that. I've seen more strength than you have to offer. I've seen greater demands made by Christ in this Bible than you can ever make of me, but He adds the Holy Spirit to it for the ability to walk in this. You can't offer me anything stronger, more demanding, more glorious, more life-changing than what I've known all of my life. But the on-again, off-again, it portrays Christianity as this weak thing that can't change people and it can't hold on to people. And people have a right to come to a conclusion about our God on the basis of what they see in our lives. And that's why Jesus wants them to see this kind of commitment in our lives. The result of an unfinished Christian life is always mocking. It gives the world a reason to mock Christ and to mock Christianity And one of the interesting things about a building that's left unfinished is it gets more attention than buildings that are finished. Funny thing, you can have a thousand Christians who are walking, the house is being completed for God's glory. It's a beautiful thing. And you've got this one unfinished thing over here, thing in the neighborhood, and that's all anybody can see. That's why God wants everybody to walk this kind of way. You ever uh, drive through, and certainly because of the economy the way that it is and all, you can sometimes drive through a neighborhood that's a beautiful neighborhood. I mean, the houses are all finished and the yards are all in and the homes are beautiful and all. You go, wow, what a nice neighborhood. I'd like to live in that neighborhood. 
And then maybe drive into another section of town and, and here's a whole subdivision that's been laid, you know, in, in its foundation. Two or three of the houses have been framed up, you know, and, and a little bit of plywood up on one of the roofs and things. And then it's left and you drive through that kind of neighborhood and the weeds are growing up through the foundation and all. And a person would look at that and say, I have no interest in living in that neighborhood. It's completely unattractive to me. And one of the problems with the on-again, off-again, off-again, on-again kind of commitment to Christ is that people never get to see our lives completed. And God is completing our lives. He's making them into something beautiful. He's making them into a house that's beautiful. He's making us into a life where anyone would look at it and say, I'd like to be a part of that neighborhood. I'd like to be a part of that family. And when there is that loss of that kind of commitment, then people look at the body of Christ and they determine, no, I think I'll pass. I think there are better options in the world. And so the importance of it. And Jesus is not wanting to discourage a single person from following him, but he does want us to count the cost which requires a very reasoned, very careful, very sober assessment of my commitment to him. Jesus then also highlights in verses 31 and 32, he also highlights the importance of counting the cost with the illustration of a king going off to war. Any king who is going out to battle against an opposing king, an opposing army, should count the cost of doing so especially if he's going into battle with inferior numbers, and especially if he's going into battle where he's outnumbered two to one. So if he foresees a chance, or he foresees he has no chance of victory in that battle, he'll send a delegation ahead to request the conditions of peace long before the battle is engaged in. So Jesus is saying that any king facing the the difficulty of a battle in which his troops are going to be outnumbered two to one will go to great lengths to assess the situation and count the cost before he enters the battle. And Jesus is saying it's with, with that kind of a sober assessment of a king that is going to send lives out into battle, we are to, to assess our willingness to follow Jesus. We are to assess that with, with the, the same sobriety. Now, notice in closing here in verse 33. In verse 33, Jesus returns to the demands of discipleship that he'd given out in verse 26 and 27 in declaring that no personal relationship, no material possession is to keep me from a life of obedience to his commands from his word, but also for his plan, purposes, for my life. We're to be willing to forsake all if he calls us to do that. That's what he calls us to, is what it means to be a Christian. And then Jesus closes finally with using the illustration of salt. He says, if a salt loses its flavor, he said, what good is it? You throw it, uh, you, know, you throw it away. And what they would do with salt that had been diluted and because of compromise or whatever it was, they'd throw it by the wayside and, and onto the paths and it would kill the weeds. At least they could get that much out of it. But a salt that's lost its flavor, it's lost its saltiness, is really good for nothing. And Jesus is saying here that there's nothing more useless to him spiritually for making a difference in this world than a selfish, self-willed, worldly, on-again, off-again follower of him. Now this is known as clarity in the Bible. It's heavy. Is it heavy to anybody else? It's heavy what he calls us to. It's very heavy. I love the exhortive text. I love the text that pushes me. I love the text that challenges me. I like all the comfort that's in the Bible too. Trust me. But I can be so thick-headed. And I can, I, I can deceive myself so quickly 
and think I'm a deeply spiritual person when I'm not, or I'm living a life that pleases God or a life that's changing the world when it's not, that I need this kind of clarity from Him. This is what Jesus calls us to. This is the kind of Christian He wants every non-Christian to run into without exception every day anywhere around the world. And he says to the whole world, as much as he wants the whole world saved, if you aren't willing to do that, then don't call yourself my disciple. It sends mixed messages on the most important subject of all of human history, and that is a relationship with God and salvation. The words are heavy. Words are heavy. And I need in this culture where it's not just the world, and you can, we can beat up on the world all that we want, but even within professing Christianity, where we are getting dumbed down like crazy. Christianity is being redefined nowhere even remotely near these terms that Jesus lays out. So I need to hear these things. And I need to hear them often. And I need to be reminded that this is what he calls us to. And don't be lured away by anything that's less than that. And it does something good in my spirit. It does something good in my life. And Jesus knows that it does in our lives. And that's why he said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. It's a needed message. So what do I do if I sit here and you say, wow, I've, my blood pressure, I've had high blood pressure in the course of this sermon. I've had low blood pressure. I've had spots before my eyes. I've had hot flashes because I'm the most on again, off again, on again. You've described my life, and are you going to push me out the door contempt? No. Because in the next couple of weeks, we're going to read about the prodigal son, and Jesus likes to find people in that condition. But let the standard get raised in your life once again. Count the cost once again. And if you count the cost and you say, I want to do that, I do want to live that life, and I mean business about that, and you want to make that commitment to Him today, then make it. But then stay with Him. And I'm speaking to myself too. Stay with Him faithfully for the rest of our lives. One of the beautiful things about our God is He does give second chances, and even more than second chances. Let the standard get raised. Now settle the issue of His Lordship once and for all today and enter into this life with Christ and then the spiritual fruit that it bears in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and around the world wherever He sends us. Let's stand together and we'll pray.